What would you give to increase sales by 8% of your restaurant? Restaurants leveraging the power of Yelp Guest Manager paired with Yelp ads enjoy up to an 8% monthly lift in diner bookings through Yelp. It makes sense, right? Millions of people use Yelp every day to find restaurants, and they're using that same trusted platform to book reservations and add themselves to wait lists. Your restaurant could be busier today. To learn more, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and quote podcast. Yelp Internal Data 2021. Based on average results from a sample study of restaurants with guest manager that purchased Yelp ads between April and July 2021 in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City. Results may vary. Now here we go. I spend a lot more time thinking about people who run these businesses because I realize how important people are in the business. We tend to look at companies and see these big monolithic structures, but they're really just a bunch of people making daily decisions every day. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. If we want to run better businesses, we need to become better business people. Today we chat with Vitaly Katzen Nelson about exactly that, improving our lives and our businesses by getting our soul in the game. This isn't about self-help or aligning your chakras. This is practical, no-nonsense advice built on timeless lessons and real-life experience. Vitaly's decades of experience as a value investor provide a unique perspective into what makes a business sustainable and how business owners can evolve into founders. So I live in Denver. I'm a CEO of IMA, which is a value investment firm. I have three kids, have a wife and three kids, and I wrote three books. Okay, my first two books focused on investing. My third book, the one we're going to talk about today, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life, talks about investing as well, but investment in your life, which is probably the most important investment you can make. So I was born in Russia and moved to the United States in 1991 and moved directly to Denver. So I spent basically all of my adult life in Denver. I got my master's and undergraduate degree in finance in here as well. I'm a CFA. And this is going to be important for the show, I run an investment firm, meaning I'm a CEO of the firm. So it's a so I run the business. So whatever travails you have running the business, I went through them as well. That's my kind of very light background. And what was the inspiration for the book on life? I mean obviously you're an expert in the field of value investing. I, I think we all hope to one day be experts in the field of life and living life. But there are so many books out there on the best way to live life. I'm sure you've read a ton of them. What hole did you see in the market? What itch were you trying to scratch? Yeah, so this is one of those things where it was completely altruistic. Like I really was not, like Tim Ferriss, I was not trying to fill this hole. I just wanted to write a book and I wanted with the book to have a positive influence on others. What sets me apart a little bit is the way I write is that I basically use myself as a hero in a sense, not I'm like I'm a hero, but as a main character. And through this main character, I tell stories that might be educational, that could help you to learn. 
and that's why it's a semi-biographical book, you could argue, but it's really not focused on me as much. It's actually, it's a, I'm just the medium through which I tell the story. And my goal really was to help people. Really, that's the only goal I have. Put it this way, if this book becomes Harry Potter, my life will not change. Financially, it's whatever. It's not going to make a difference in my life. Well, and the book is, just to describe it in a word, strange, in like a really lovely way. It's like this exploration into your mind, like in reading the book and seeing how you chose to present the information. What it does is it shows like the lens through which you see the world. It's not in chronological order, right? It's almost in the order in which you remember things, or at the very least, in the way that you prioritize things in your life. It's divided into sections. At some points, it's long form. At other points, it's a series of essays. You tackle everything from biographical information on classic composers to stoicism. Again, with a ton of personal stories mixed in as well. Once it was done, right? And you've got this thing that it's your gift to the world. I made this for you. What do you hope people walk away with? It's very difficult to answer this question because it depends where you are in your life today. So if you're an entrepreneur, it provides you framework of the academy of control, for instance, of how you should really be focused on the process, not just the outcome. If you are a parent, it's going to tweak you to maybe spend maybe a little bit more time with your kids. If you tried meditation before and failed, it's going to provide some tools how to rekindle, rekindle that. It depends where you are, truly where you are in your life. So it's very difficult just to have one message because there's really 75 stories in the book or even more than that. Let's talk about systems. It's interesting you bring it up because in that moment you sounded like a value investor, right? Because you own and operate your own business, but that business has a window into thousands of businesses, right? And so, so many of us are focused on these lagging indicators, not leading indicators. So many of us as entrepreneurs are focused on, like you said, the end result instead of the systems. How old were you when you started developing systems for your life? And what did that process look like? In all fairness, I think I became a lot more self-aware and focused on systems. Like I started to focus on myself from a personal perspective when I had kids, because kids are the best stimulant for intellectual growth. Because what happens when the kids start growing up, you start teaching them. When you start teaching them, you start learning. And then it gets more interesting because when you teach him, you also don't want to be a hypocrite. So the behavior you teach him, you start to actually aspire to behave what you teach him. So that was an incredibly educational process for me. And also, as you get older, you become uh, quite aware of your mortality because when you're young, you think you live forever. And that made me also focus kind of on the systems of my life, about the focus on meditation, how much I sleep, on working every day, on writing, all these different things. Even working out, I realized that I won't be healthy forever. So for me to have good health when I'm older, I need to start working it today. Walking in the park, it's just for me to clear my brain. I also play chess, and I look at chess as a mental exercise for my brain. This is like when you go to the gym to work out. I go, I take my brain to the gym when I play chess. Now, from a business perspective, you made a very interesting point. I do have a view at many different companies because we analyze companies all the time. 
However, this is important. I think when I became a CEO of IMA, the investment firm, when I started to manage people, that changed the way I look at everything. Like now, like when I became a CEO, I started to focus on systems within the firm. Anything we do more than once, we put it in a repeatable process. If we can either find somebody, put a process, we try to automate things as much as possible. We use different software systems to help us manage the systems. So becoming a CEO was an incredibly important milestone in my life because it just really changed. So when I analyze businesses today, by the way, I spend a lot more time thinking about people who run these businesses because I realize how important people are in the business. We tend to look at companies and see these big monolithic structures, but they're really just a bunch of people making daily decisions every day. Well, and I also want to frame the overall conversation because I do want to get prescriptive. And I think the best place to start that conversation is a story from the end of the book, which is you tell the story of the Dalai Lama and sugar. Can you do me a favor and share that story with us now and how it relates to the book? Yeah. So this woman brings her son to Dalai Lama and says, my son eats too much sugar. Could you please talk to him and convince him not to eat a lot of sugar? The Dalai Lama looks at the woman, looks at the son and says, you know what? Why didn't you come back in a month? The woman said, okay. So she comes back in a month. Dalai Lama looks at the woman, looks at the son, and then he tells her son, stop eating sugar. The woman is bewildered. She's in shock. She's like, I was here a month ago. You just made me come back again in a month. Why? He's like, well, first, I had to stop eating sugar myself. (laughs) And so this book, the way it relates to the book, this book is my attempt to stop eating sugar. Like my, a lot of my systems, a lot of mental models of how I go through life, I try to implement them. However, there is an important point here that a lot of them require practice and change in your behavior. And you're going to fail a lot. And I do fail a lot. And when I fail, I just learn from my mistakes and move forward. And I think that's the point of the book and point of the story as well. Then let's get granular. One of the topics that comes up again and again and again in the book is this idea of art versus craft, how they work together, how they're different. And that concept manifests itself again and again and again throughout the book. And to begin that conversation, can you define for me what art is and what craft is for you and the differences between the two? Let me tell you this story. My brother, my son, and I were in Venice. And we took this trip to Murano Glassmaking Factory. There was this guy, there's like a little show, and then they tried to get you to buy glass. This guy basically takes a bulb of hot glass, and literally in the two minutes, you can see how he put traps into the glass. And these little things, and suddenly in less than two minutes, the glass horse is born. Like right in front of your eyes, out of nowhere. And we, we were stunned by this. And we are walking after this around Venice and we're debating if this horse is art or craft. I think I was arguing for craft. My brother was arguing, arguing for, for art. And then we look at the, all these the different shops that sell the same horse he just made. It looks identical. So then we kind of decided, okay, that must be a craft. And then I realized the art is really a craft from this perspective, how whatever that creation is makes you feel. 
Mm-hmm. If it if really impacts you, it's an art. If it doesn't impact you, then you can put it in a craft category. However, I realized I was really asking the one question. The question I should have been asking when this guy was making a horse, was it an art for him or was it craft? This is where it gets interesting. So when he started to make this horse in the very beginning, when he had this hot bulb of glass, he did not know how the horse is going to even look like when he started making it. The first horse. You know, the feeling you experience at that moment is there is fear and curiosity. You're curious how it's going to look, but there is a sense of fear because you have no idea how it's going to look like when you're finished. This is the tug of war of two of these two emotions. So at that point, it's an art. Now, if you make the same horse 5,000 times for two or three years in a row, little by little, the curiosity will go away and the fear will go away because you know exactly when you're going to have to do to make this horse. At that point, for you, it's going to stop being an art and it's going to become a craft. And I think this is where the concept of art and craft lives. And anything we do, you need to have a certain amount of art and craft. You can't just have only art because then you're going to have a very messy life. It's, you, know, you need to have some craft. But if you have only craft, then you're going to have a very boring life. So you need to find this balance. And you need to know, and when you notice that whatever you're doing becomes only craft, you need to change what you're doing. You need to change the subject matter, whatever. Yeah. This is why I wanted to have you on the show. And the reason being, when you look at the restaurant industry, it is this mixture of art and craft. So when you build a restaurant, when you create a restaurant, when you establish the menu, that is art. In a way that you described, one of the essential elements of art is this tension, right? This curiosity, this not knowing. But operating a restaurant is craft. And I think that understanding the delineation between the two is a centerpiece in what makes for a successful restaurant, because there must be balance. And I see so many independent owners and operators, and I've been guilty myself of this in the past, this idea that it is an artistic endeavor. And in doing so, it doesn't fall in line with the foundational principles of business, right? Whereas I think a lot of crafts would, or to see it as entirely craft and then the restaurant gets stale because it's just this repetitive task done in an excellent way over and over again. Figuring out the right balance between the two is I think the difference between success and failure in the restaurant industry, which is I mean, honestly, it was like a revolutionary idea when I read it in the book. So you're so right. Let me give you an example that's 20 minutes old. Okay. I was just making oatmeal. And I take my oatmeal seriously and we have like oatmeal bar and I have a whole bunch of dry fruit and nuts, etc. And when I was making it, I put it for one minute and it's overboiled, etc. And then I realized, so at this point, I'm in a creative process. I have to figure out Okay, do you want to put fruits later after it's cooked or before? Now, how long do I want to heat it up? I go through all this experiment and I try these different recipes. Now, once I went through the experimentation, at this point, the curiosity and fear are right there, present. Once I figured it out, I should write, if this was that important to me, I would write very precise instructions of how to make it. Okay, so it would become repeatable 
for somebody else to do this. Okay, so now creating this recipe of how to make this very complex oatmeal, <laughs> that is an art. And creating a system for that is an art. But then you want to put in the system that somebody else with a lot less creativity than you, anybody else, could do this. And I think this is what it comes to restaurants. In the restaurant, there is a lot of creativity in creating the menu, creating systems, creating the experience of how a person is greeted when they come into the door, the smell the restaurant has, the music it plays. This is where the art is. Once you create this, that should become a system. So when a, the first employee that comes in the morning, they need to have a very clear instruction, systems that you created that they can follow. And those systems should have as little art as possible. They should be full of craft. I love that. Let's pivot. Let's move on to the one day at a time section of the book. Because I think that's an interesting lens to look at your life through. What does your day-to-day life look like? And what are some of the best practices described in that section that help you get it all done in what I would describe as a really intentional way? Okay, so, well, let's talk about the concept. Because I think the concept, I think, is very powerful. So what happens, I don't think this is specific to the United States. I think this is specific to the rest of the world as well. Every January, we make New Year's resolutions. And we are looking the last year, look at all our failures and say, this year we're going to do better. This year we're going to start working out. And this is why we sign up for gym memberships. And then by the end of March, even, you know, we keep paying for gym, but we stop going. Okay. I would argue that one year is a very long time. And I can prove it to you. We have a lot more days in our lives than years. So if you start approaching your life as one day is your life, and what you try to do every day, you want to live the best life you can. So when you look at the end of the day, on your day, you're proud of that day. Okay, now you can judge that day on different criteria. Like the most important one for me is how I behaved. Did I get easily irritated? Was I kind to other people? And if I failed, let's say in these two categories, what can I learn from this so I don't do this again? So... If you just do it in a micro doses, if you just do proof a little bit every day, if you lose your temper a little bit less, if you're kind to people a little bit more, there's a lot of days in your life. Just improve a tiny bit every single day, you improve your life. If you have an ambition to work out, maybe you should work out a little bit every day. Maybe if you if for workout, you want to do how many times a week do you work out? That's fine too. Before I go to sleep, I think about my day, I reflect on this, and I ask myself, what can I do better tomorrow? That's basically the concept. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're gonna learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. 
I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. Can you talk about the personal finance advice that changed your life? So, okay. So when I got married 22, 23 years ago, my friend Mark, who was at the time 10 years older than me, he took out my wife and I to lunch and he introduced us to this concept of budgeting. Let me just, I got to give you a little bit of context. At this point, I already had a master's degree in finance and I had a CFA designation. So the whole concept of budgeting was a little bit offensive to me because here's the guy who has like, I got more finance degrees than most people in the world. Now my friend is teaching me about budget. But what's interesting, he introduced it to me in a slightly different way. So he said, well, what you want to do, in your, you know, figure out what your income is, figure out what your expenses are, and then what's left is the money you can spend. Okay, so I, this is where I get really offended because like, okay, I know what the income statement looks like. But then he added a few more points. He said, what happens a lot of times in our life, we focus on like cable bill and phone bill and a mortgage payment, whatever. But we forget this. A lot of expenses will happen to us in the future. And when they happen to us, we they come to us as a surprise, even though we know about them today. Like I'll give an example. Guess what? Once or twice a year, you go on vacation. So what you want to do, you want to make sure that you save a little bit every month for those future expenses. And therefore, when they come to you, you won't be surprised. And more importantly, when you look how much money you have left after you're spending, you're going to have actually a lot less money than you thought. And therefore, you can adjust your spending accordingly. You can think about so many other expenses we have in our lives that every so many years we buy a car. Okay, so guess what? You can figure out how much money you need to save in five years when you're going to trade in your car and you can start saving it for today. So that becomes our expense line on a budget. The key here is this. Like what you really want to avoid in life is to have consumer debt because that you will never win this race because you'll be paying high interest rate. And at the end of the day, the cost of your living is going to be so much higher. Now, also, you want to be mindful about your spending. This is very important. When, let's say, Josh, you're going to Starbucks, like you started a new job. And the first day when you go to the job, you stop by Starbucks. You got your coffee. Next day, you do the same thing. Suddenly, you have a habit. You're going to spend $5 a day. Now, this is important to understand. You want to ask yourself, do I really enjoy Starbucks? Is that how valuable is that to me? Or maybe I have a Chipotle burrito twice a week is more important to me. I receive more enjoyment than that, you know, than the Starbucks. Or maybe going on two vacations a year instead of one is more important to me. Now, what you want to do, you want to mentally go through all your spending and ask yourself, what's the most important? Which one is less important? And you want to rank it. By doing this, you'll figure out that, you know what? Actually, going on vacation twice a year is more important to me than getting Starbucks every day. In fact, I kind of was getting Starbucks because I mindlessly did it once. And then it just became an expensive habit. So you may say, okay, well, the money I spend, I save 
from not going to Starbucks, now I can use that money to go on extra vacation. So, and I think that concept is very important because not every hundred dollars is created equal. Hundred dollars that buy things that you value buys more than hundred dollars that buy things you might value less. And I think that it translates from personal to professional life as well, especially as an entrepreneur. One of the things that I did after reading that section was I ranked my professional expenses. I went through and I said, what is most important? What is least important? What is essential? What is non-essential? What is optional? And in doing so, it gave me a very clear view of my finances from a whole new perspective. In operating a restaurant, which has hundreds of variable expenses, I think would have been absolutely invaluable. And it's the reason I wanted you to share the story. Another topic that I wanted to bring up from that section is the power of long-term thinking. You talk about it in uh, Set Your Egg Timer to Six Months. Oh, yeah. There is a wonderful book called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. And by the way, your listeners, after you've done with this podcast, I highly advise to you, go on YouTube and just look for Last Lecture. So Randy was a professor at Cornell University. When he was in his early 40s, I think 44, 45, he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he gave this lecture, his goodbye lecture to his students where he shared his life lessons. And then later it became a book, the last lecture. But anyway, in this book, he tells this wonderful story that really, really stuck with me. Even before he got married, long before he had cancer, he bought a brand new car, convertible. And he came to pick up his niece and nephew to take him to amusement park. And his sister sold his new car. She told her kids, listen, make sure not to destroy your uncle's car. Make sure to be careful. And while she's saying that, Randy takes a bottle of Coke, opens it up, looking at his sister, and pours the Coke on the back seats of the car. His sister was absolutely stunned. And Randy said, listen, this is just a car. That's it. It's not very important. Now, there's a full script to the story. So Randy passed away 14 years ago. This story probably happened 20 years ago. Just think about what happened to that car. That car that his sister was you know, organizing about. It's probably someone in the junkyard, right? And if you think about most of the material things we have, at some point they will be in the junkyard. That spill you have on a couch, that couch will be trashed at some point. Okay, so that car you have that's got dented, it's going to be trashed as well. So what the story, what really makes you focus on what things are important in your life, what aren't. And it refocuses. And by the way, once you start looking at life this way, you realize that material things matter a lot less than you thought. And the point is this, if you had six months to live, and this was basically how much doctors gave Randy when he gave the last lecture, would you live your life differently? Because we look at our life as this, uh, it seems like forever. But if you had six months to live, would you make different decisions? Would you still be agonizing about a dent in the car? Or would you be focusing on spending more time with your relatives and your, your kids, your daughter? And I think that is really the lesson here. If you have this lens of six months to your life, you're going to start making very different decisions. And you care less about some things and care a lot more about others. And I think that's going to in increase the positive calories in your life, your life is going to have a lot more meaning this way. You spend a lot of time in the book espousing Stoic philosophies. And rather than reviewing them all, because you cover a ton, 
I'm curious to know what your favorites are from each section and how they manifest in your day-to-day life. So if we were to start with part one, which is your operating system, what are the stoic philosophies that you love, that you've internalized, and that you use on a day-to-day basis? All right. I'm going to make the one that's actually going to apply to personal life and business at the same time. How's that? Sure. Dichotomy of control. That's what got me hooked on stoic philosophy. Before we go into stoicism, let me tell you what it is. Stoic philosophy, what is it? the word philosophy means? Love of wisdom. It sounds very intimidating, but all it is is love of wisdom. Stoic philosophy is a 2,000-year-old philosophy from Greece. And I look at it as basically an operating system for life. Just what happens when we are born, we have this, uh, we get come with hardware and software. And the software is basically blank slate, right? And then through our parents, through our friends, books, experiences, etc., you know, the operating system or behavior is written. A lot of time it's complete chaos. What Stoic philosophy does, it basically provides a better operating system, like a very simple operating system that if you follow it, it's going to remove a lot of anxiety out of your life, a lot of misery. That's all it is. Now, let's talk about the Academy of Control. There was a Stoic, his name is Epictetus. He actually was a slave. And he had this, you know, because the saying, some things in life are up to us, some things aren't. Maybe I can rephrase it. Very few things in our life are up to us, most things aren't. And the, those few things are basically our values and our actions. That's all up to us. It's, those are internal to us. Everything else is external. So if you are building a restaurant, what's up to you is how thoughtful you are about creating it the processes you put in place, how much effort you put into it, okay? People like your food. How many people are going to come? Completely not up to you. Now, the reason this distinction is important, you should focus, and this is a lot easier said than done, on your processes, on your effort, and realizing that, because that's internal to you, that's you can control, and you spend a lot less time worrying about people going to like it or not. Here's why. Because you have no control about, over it. And so therefore, when you're obsessed about it, you're completely wasting your energy, time, your emotions. So what's up to you, by the way, when you created a restaurant and it's not as successful as you thought, what's up to you, what you do next? And you constantly keep experimenting with new things, etc. That's up to you. Again, every single time how people react to this, if you're successful or not, completely not up to you. I got to tell you the story. One of the most treasured paintings in the world is Mona Lisa. Do you know why Mona Lisa is so popular? No. has absolutely nothing to do with Mona Lisa being Mona Lisa. But what happened was it was just another painting in, in Louvre in Paris until like the early 1900s when it was stolen. It just literally somebody came, took the painting and left. That made international stories. For several years, all newspapers in the world were writing about it. And then they found there was one guy who lived nearby who was Italian. He was so upset that the Italian painting is in France. That's why he took it. And then when he tried to sell it, he got caught. After that, this became the most famous painting in in the world, right? So why am I telling you this? Leonardo da Vinci painted this painting. He did the best job he could. He took him years and years and years to do it. And the success of the painting was completely determined by a random factor that somebody stole it. 
So when you build the restaurants, you put all your soul into it. But you may have good luck and bad luck, and you have completely no control over how successful it's going to be. So this is why you just, just focus on your process. I want to end by talking about worldview as it relates to your network. At the beginning of the book, you have reviews from General Stanley McChrystal, Nassim Talib, Wim Hof, Derek Sivers, Carl Bernstein. I'll stop there. I'm sure everybody gets the picture. And then there are probably another dozen to two dozen quotes as it relates to the book included. This is your network. These are the people that you have been exposed to, that you expose your wisdom to. How do you build a network like that? And what value do you get from it? I hate to disappoint you, but this is not my network. I knew some of these people, like Nassim Taleb, and I conversed and I know them personally. But General McChrystal, I never met him in my life. Derek Sivers, I never met him in my life either. I really liked General McChrystal's interview with Tim Ferriss. I thought it was phenomenal. I contacted him. I said, here's my book. If you like it, we'd love your endorsement. That was it. So same thing as Derek Sivers. So in fact, I would argue that makes those endorsements even more valuable because there was- I would agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So completely genuine endorsements of my book. 70% endorsements of the book, those are the people are, as you would put it, not in my network. But it brings up an even better point. So I want to say it's Mark Andreessen. I'm probably misquoting or misattributing the quote, but it's worth bringing up. He says that when you start something new, best practice is to do things that don't scale, right? And what that shows me is that you did something that does not scale, right? Independent, authentic communication with an ask, which I think a lot of people are afraid to do, right? People are afraid of rejection. They're afraid of offending people. It's not like you asked for a quote for your book. You had to ask people to dedicate hours to reading your book and then offering an endorsement of that book if they liked it after the fact. Massive ask of complete strangers. And then you think about the restaurant industry and how much time we spend trying to do things that scale in order to build a loyal clientele, in order to compel people to do things that we want them to do. When, if it was replaced with just authentic communication in a clear call to action, a clear directive, we might achieve better results. Look from the academy of control. The only thing I can control is I can ask him for that. And their response completely not up to me. So, But I think there was something else. There was another thing. And this applies to this book and to restaurants. Whenever you have a great product, and I'm obviously biased, but I think it's a great product, you still need to create a lot of randomness for this product to make it in the world. So me asking General McChrystal was a completely random act, right? And however, if the product was not good, he would decline. So I think the creating our own randomness and from different directions is extremely, extremely important. Listen, like right now we're talking about this book. All these people are running out buying this book. And then they start telling their friends. And one of their friends goes to Tim Ferriss and says, Tim, you have to interview Vitaly. I'm just making this up. And suddenly, by talking to you and your great podcast, I'm really enjoying it, by the way, I end up on Tim Ferriss' show or Joe Rogan's show. Again, that's how randomness works. And I think this is something when you, have, when you build a business, creating the good product is not enough. 
it's very important. That's the foundation. But then you also have to create a lot of randomness. And I think what you're talking about there is just kind of a nonlinear way of thinking, right? The book that you wrote is nonlinear. You think about your life in a really nonlinear way. And by baking in that randomness, you're accepting the fact that life is, by and large, nonlinear. No, I think that, I think you're absolutely right, though, in all fairness. I was not trying to write a nonlinear book. That's just the only book I could write. And I, I did write two linear books before. But writing the third one was not interesting to me anymore. At that point, see, the, writing the third investment book became too much of a craft for me. So that's why I lost interest in that. And writing this book was a lot more interesting to me. But the only way I could do it in the way I liked it was doing it in a nonlinear way. So I didn't do it for the sake of being nonlinear. It's just that's the only way I could do it. This is volume one. What are you going to talk about in volume two? So the problem is writing a book about life when you're relatively young is that life continues, right? I'm in the student of life mode, so I keep learning new things all the time. And since the book came out, I already wrote four new chapters. And I'm working on the fifth one. By the way, if your listeners go to soulinagame.net, there are instructions how they can get those four chapters absolutely free. So... What I realized, instead of kind of thinking about as I'm writing volume two, I just keep writing. I'm just, Soul in the Game is my book, which is maybe another way to look at it as a endless number of volumes. Okay. So as long as I'm alive, as long as I keep learning, I keep writing because that brings me a lot of joy. And this is how I learn. That's Vitaly Katzen-Nelson. Check out his book, Soul in the Game, volume one, wherever you buy books. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.